Whatever our culture says about faith, um, that faith is positive feelings, this warm sense of inspiration, uh, the Bible has a much grander, more beautiful picture of faith for us. So look with me at, at what this passage says. Firstly, faith is the assurance that God exists. What is faith? What Hebrews 11 is telling us is that by faith, we believe that God exists. We believe that there is a God who objectively exists, that, that, that there is a God who is real. Um, he's not just a story. God is not just a tradition that we don't just believe, um, that we don't just believe in God or we don't just believe that there is a God because that's the way that we were brought up. That's the family that we were raised in. Uh, faith is the conviction that God is real. And um, you see in verse 3, he says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. What he's saying is that God is objective. Uh, he, he really exists. And he, he exists in such a way that he actually interacts with the physical, the material world. Um, he's not just a fairy tale, but he actually is a, a God who exists and, and interacts with the world that we live in. Now, that might seem like kind of obvious. It, it might seem totally uh, hard to believe, but it might seem, if you're a Christian, if you've been in church for a long time, that might seem like the most obvious kind of uh, statement in the world. But what I'm trying to do here is, is highlight the difference between faith in the God of the Bible and uh, the, the faith as our kind of, uh, or the word faith as our culture understands it. Because the way that our culture puts like a, a, the word faith or believe on a beautiful picture or like, you know, the word believe on a coffee mug, <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? Yes, I just, I believe in coffee. That's how I start the morning, right? Um, but, but what our culture is saying is that belief or faith is something that is personal and inspiring. And so if it's, if, you know, uh, if you believe in that, that's great for you. If that inspires you, if that makes you feel good about the world, then that's great. Maybe that's uh, for you certain stories. Maybe those are, you know, certain fairy tales. Maybe those are Bible stories. Um, but it's all about, you know, the way our culture thinks about faith. It's all about what it does for you. It's personal. It's private. Uh, it's inspiring. But what Hebrews 11 is showing us is that uh, there is a God who actually exists. The Bible talks about faith uh, that is real, that is objective. It, it, it's talking about faith in a God who really exists as a matter of truth. Um, he is real whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we want to believe in him or not. Okay, yesterday I was walking through a parking lot. I had, uh, got out, parked my car, walking into a restaurant, and I'm walking into the restaurant across the parking lot, and I hear this voice that says, hey, where'd you steal that car from? And I looked over, and it was Jeff Barney. <laughs> and before that voice said something to me, I did not know that Jeff Barney was sitting there. But nobody had to convince me <laughs> once I saw him. He was just there. Uh, nobody talked me into the existence of Jeff Barney. Now, okay, so here's the leap I'm making, that in this illustration, Jeff Barney is the stand-in for the existence of God. Okay, I hope that's not heresy. Don't fire me. Um, 
nobody had to convince me that he was real. He was just there, and he was there whether I recognized him or not. And that's what the Bible is saying about God. He is there. He interacts with the world. He answers prayer. Um, he, he, um, he meets our needs. And biblical faith is the assurance that that is true. This week, I heard a, a video clip. A, a friend sent me a video clip of a uh, kind of a well-known speaker. And um, she was talking about how God interacts with people in the world. And she kind of made this offhanded comment where she said, you know, she's talking about how God interacts with people. And she says, now, it doesn't matter if you call him God or the universe or Buddha or Beyonce. And everybody laughed. And, you know, in the culture that we live in, there's an incredible pressure for us to say that about God, uh, that it doesn't really matter what you call him. But in the real world that we live in, in a world where there are such things as um, jobs and relationships, uh, where there's such a thing as evil and divorce, where there's such a thing as cancer and bankruptcy, um, if there's a God who actually makes a difference in your life, that God has to be real. And, um, you know, the universe isn't going to do anything to you no matter how much positive juju you put out into the universe. And Beyonce doesn't know who you are. And Buddha is dead. Um, and Buddha never told us to follow him or believe that he was divine. Um, and so if there is a God, the, only a real God, only a God who actually exists can make a difference in our lives. And by saying all of that, I do not mean to imply that belief or faith in that God is an easy thing. Um, actually, I think it's a miracle. Um, I cannot talk you into believing. I cannot shame you for not believing that God exists. Um, but, and, and, and let me say this, it does not, belief in God does not necessarily make your life easier. In fact, it, it, having faith in God feels like you get into a car that you're not driving anymore. <laughs> and it's going somewhere whether you want it to go there or not. Um, but once you have the conviction that God exists, you cannot deny it. Even while I can't convince you that he is real. I remember when I was in high school, I read... C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And I already, um, I already, you know, had faith that God was real. And I remember thinking, this book was so great. He, uh, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis kind of just tries to explain as logically as he can why the God of the Bible exists. And I remember giving it to my friend Bill and thinking, like, if, if I could just get Bill to read this book, like, he'd be convinced. And he, he read it, he's like, this is stupid. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, it's a miracle that I exist, or that I, that I believe. And, I have, and I'm so thankful that I have faith. And so, um, if you don't have faith that there is a God, that he has made himself known to us in the Bible, that he has made himself known to us in his Son, then I would encourage you to just ask him to open your eyes. I cannot convince you that he exists. I cannot argue you into his existence. But the Bible says that faith itself is a gift. 
and that God makes himself known to those who seek him. Faith is a gift. It's impossible to conjure faith up if you don't have it. And it's impossible to deny it if you do have it. Okay, so that's the first thing that this passage says about what faith is. It's, uh, it's the assurance that there is a God who exists. But secondly, faith is the conviction that the absolute best way to live our lives is to follow him, to follow this God who actually exists. Okay, so I'm going to read um, like verses 8 through 28 of Hebrews 11. It's a long section, so just listen as I read or follow along. But what I want you to, the question I want to ask you this is, Okay, so he's given this big abstract definition of what faith is, and then he gives a bunch of examples of people we think of as like the, old, the heroes of the Old Testament. What, do, what does every single one of these examples have in common? Listen, listen as I read, starting in verse 8. He says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with, uh, with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and man him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was... and Sorry, I missed something there. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy fleeting pleasure, the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And it goes on and on and on to keep mentioning these Old Testament figures 
Okay, so what do all these examples have in common? It's very simple. Every single one of them had faith that compelled them to action. Every single one of them had faith that, that compelled them to action, that moved them to actually make a sacrifice in order to follow God. In verse 6, it says that if we have true faith, we must believe that God rewards those who seek him. Um, what does that mean? It means that the best way to live is to follow God wherever he leads. Um, it's not to pursue a life of comfort, uh, to pursue a life of ease, but the best life is to, uh, the best life, the most full life, the most beautiful life, the most meaningful life is a life of following God wherever he leads us. And Hebrews 11 is saying that will invariably involve following God into some kind of sacrifice. So think about just a couple of the examples he gives. He talks about Abraham. And he said, Abraham, because of his faith in God, he left his home. Um, Now, a lot of us have probably left our homes, but Abraham left his home, um, you know, pre-internet, right? Like, they could have never seen him again. There were no cell phones. He never saw his family again. Uh, He gave up his wealth. He gave up his people. Uh, He gave up the place that he knew because he trusted God. And through the ups and downs of his life, he became so convinced of the goodness of God that uh, God, having promised him a son for years and years, it was 25 years from when God promised him a son to the point that Isaac was born. And then he's finally, the son is finally born. And, and at this point, God, or Abraham is so convinced of the goodness of God in his life that when God calls him to then sacrifice Isaac, he, he takes him up on the mountain without hesitation to obey God. Incredible. Uh, he talks about Moses. And uh, Moses, you know, he's just highlighting, summarizing these Old Testament stories. But Moses uh, was found by Pharaoh's daughter and, and grew up in the household of the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And yet Moses... Uh, what was he, 40 years old when he gave it all up, or 20 years old when he gave it all up and ran away um, to live in Midian in obscurity in the desert. And he sacrificed the wealth that he had and the status that he had really as an adopted son of the Pharaoh because it says that he believed that following Jesus was worth it. Some of us, uh, maybe you don't have faith as the Bible defines it. You don't have the assurance that God truly exists. And it would be easy to kind of listen to this and say, well, isn't that convenient? Uh, The idea that you have this faith that there is a God who is real. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but what I want to say is it's not convenient. Because faith in the God who actually exists, like I said, is like getting into a car that you're not driving. Uh, And God is going to invariably lead us to a place that will require us uh, to enter into sacrifice. True faith in God, while it is an indescribable blessing, will always call us to action. There is nothing really convenient about faith. And everybody who's ever had true faith in God has, has been called in this place where, where there's a cost to following, to following Jesus. You know, I've been a pastor for, um, what, 12, 13, almost 13 years? And as I look back on that time, I think the most difficult and painful thing is 
the number of people I have known who followed Jesus for eight times and then gave up on him. And, um, you know, I think back to, uh, I mean, we've all had probably, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, friends who at one point were considered themselves Christians and no longer. Um, a lot of college students in my time as a, as a college pastor who were excited about Jesus and yet a few years down the road no longer walking with him. And, and in those occasions when I was, have been able to kind of go back and talk to people and say, well, you know what, what happened? Typically, the response is something like, I was a Christian then and it worked for me then and now I'm doing this and this works for me now. And, and, and what I think is happening is that oftentimes we're willing to say, I'm a Christian right up until the point that it actually costs me something. I'm a Christian right up until the point where it requires something of me, where it requires me to say yes to something I don't want to say yes to, where it requires me to say no to something that I don't uh, want to say no to. And so the question for us I mean, this is the world that we're living in, and for, I don't know, the last maybe 150 years, it's been fairly convenient in the West to be a Christian. And I think we're entering into a time where we're going to have to start counting the cost of what it costs to follow Jesus. So what does it cost you to follow Jesus? Um, we live in a culture that says faith should be easy Faith should come naturally. Uh, did you did you hear that? You know what I read. People called out of their homes. People called away from comfort um, in order to follow God because they had faith. Verse twenty six said about Moses. This is amazing. Verse twenty six says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Okay, to be corrected by Jesus, Moses considered that greater than the inexhaustible riches of Egypt. We could unpack that for days, couldn't we? But the point is this, that if you have faith, then you know he's worth it. You might not always like that, but you know he's worth it. So let me ask this, like, resurrection OC, what does it cost us? to follow Jesus. You know, there's a lot of ways I could unpack that, but, but let me just talk about our Christmas offering for a minute, because did you see a few minutes ago on the screen there was this guy that said we're trying to raise $45,000 in December? And did anybody wonder, like, how in the world is that possible? Um, I could tell you mathematically how it's possible that it's within what we think the tolerances of all the things are, and that if, you know, a few families give whatever amount, you know. <laughs> um, it's, it's possible. It's very possible. But isn't a better answer when you hear the stories of what God has done through our church? Not that our, no, we're not the only church here. We're not the best church, right? Like, but God is with us. When you hear the Merwins talking about what God has done in their life, when you hear last week Kim talking about what God has done in the life. Like, why would we not want to give towards this? Why would we not sacrifice? It's not about the money, is it? Uh, I mean, if, like, it takes money to keep ministry running. 
But why would we not want to put our, uh, our treasure where God has shown himself to be at work? He invites us to invest our hearts and our lives in his kingdom. And I feel like every time we kind of stand up here and say, okay, guys, we've got this big financial goal. I'm, part of me is a terrified that somebody's going to come and be like, when are you ever going to stop asking us for money? I feel that fear acutely. But the other part of me says, I love you too much to deny you the opportunity to invest in what God is doing here. You are going to, if you give to the Christmas offering, you are going to celebrate what God is doing in 2019 through our church in a much more profound way than if you just watch it pass you by. Some of you have been faithful, you've been generous. Thank you. Um, Others of you, maybe you've never given to our church, maybe you've never given to a church at all. And if, if that's you, then I would just tell you that it takes faith to give. And if our giving doesn't require faith of us that we're not giving enough. But if you think about my wife and my wife and I spent all yesterday morning like proactively planning how to give our kids a Christmas. A great Christmas. And if we're not applying that same level of intentionality to the, to the way that we are giving. And, you know, we, we give in other ways besides just our money. We give to other things besides this church. I get that. But why wouldn't we want to proactively, intentionally give to what God is doing at Resurrection OC? Um, the true, true faith is the conviction that following God is the best, most exciting, most thrilling, adventurous way that we could live our lives. Okay, that's the second thing um, that true faith uh, involves. But the third thing that we see in this passage, and, um, well, yeah, let me say this. Faith, the third thing that we see is that faith is the willingness to wait on God. Faith is the willingness to wait on God. Let me just read again verses 13 through 16. Did, Did this strike you as I read this a minute ago? It says this. These all, everybody is described These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Um, He says everyone he's mentioned in this passage did not receive the thing that they longed for, that they hoped for. And um, what I'm going to say in the next few minutes, I, I could have told you this six months ago, and it would have been true. But what I'm about to say to you is coming from um, what God has taught me in the last three or four months. All these people, all these heroes of the faith died not having received the thing that they longed for. Faith is the willingness to wait on God. And what God has been teaching me and what I want you to hear is this, that God uses 
these periods of just waiting that seem to go on forever. And God uses these times of trials in our lives, and God uses um, hardship, and God uses suffering, and God uses what Christians, um, you know, in the 1500s, St. John of the Cross wrote this book called The Dark Night of the Soul. And Christians have, have often used that, that phrase, dark night of the soul, I've discovered often lasts longer than just one night. Um, sometimes it lasts for months. Um, but God uses these times to do some of his most important work in us. And he is in no hurry, frustratingly so. He is in no hurry to get us through these times because he is working in us before he works through us. Uh, if you think about Abraham, you know, if you go back and you read Genesis, like, what is it, like Genesis 12 through Genesis 20-ish, something like that, kind of the life of Abraham, and you will read, I think, five or six, like, major, major life crises that Abraham walks through until when he's, I think, 120 years old. And God says, you've been waiting for a son for your whole, whole life. And now I want you to take him up on the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. And I just think, why didn't Abraham turn around and say, like, are you kidding me? Like, I've been through this over and over and over again and I'm done. But, but he doesn't because he's done a work in Abraham. God um, is not in a hurry. You know, we... If you look at the internet, you look at media, you read books, you kind of, we get the impression that like, unless I'm doing significant things in my life by the age of 30, that I am like way behind my peers. And God is just not in a hurry. And he is content to take us through these periods of immense waiting to shape us and to form us and to do his work in his children. You think about Moses, uh, Moses growing up in the house of Pharaoh. And God used Moses to lead his people out of slavery, but Moses would have been intolerable. You know, if 20-year-old Moses had led Israel out of slavery. Rash Moses, impulsive Moses, who, who was willing to kill a man because he was, uh, you know, Moses was ready to step up and be the savior of Israel. And instead of doing that, God takes him for what, 40 or 80 years out into the desert where Moses just hangs out with the sheep <laughs> like, and does nothing for a lifetime, it feels like. And he's working in Moses and he's humbling Moses before he works through Moses. And so what we see is that God uses these dark nights of the soul. He uses these times when it seems like God is not even working to do some of his most profound work in us before he begins to work through us. God uses these times when he feels distance, when we have no idea what he's doing, where we wonder if he's even there in order to shape us. Uh, he uses things like, um, like broken dreams. He uses things like a failed marriage. He uses things like sickness, like cancer. He uses things like the betrayal of people you trust. Losing a job. He uses these things where we can't see where he is or what he's doing to change us, to beat sin out of us, to, to humble us. And I think one of the things that he does is that he, um, 
he uses these times to like retune our taste buds, to reshape our appetites. And, and that's what he's saying in, the, in verses 13 through 16. When, what is he talking about? Like the city that he longed for. Okay, he's talking about Abraham and he promised to give Abraham land and Abraham's following God and yet he's never getting any land. And um, the, Abraham, when Abraham dies, the only land he owned in the promised land was the tomb that his wife was buried in. But it says he saw and greeted them from afar. Uh, he gets a glimpse that, that, that nothing, that no amount of land on this earth would ever be enough to satisfy Abraham. And says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a heavenly city. So he says Abraham inherited not the land that he was promised. Abraham lived his whole life longing for land until a point where he, he knew that no land would ever satisfy him except for the heavenly city of God. Until that's what he truly longed for. Uh, God uses this time of wandering to show Abraham that the only thing that would satisfy him is God himself. And so God uses these times of trials and dark nights to retune our taste buds to, to um, I mean, one way to think about it is, I feel like I struggle with this all the time, but it's very easy for me to confuse my, um, my feelings about God for excitement about God himself. And so, as a pastor, what, for me, what that often looks like is when things at the church are going well, and when the church is growing, and when the room is full, and giving is up, and people are excited, it's like, yes, God is good. And so, I guess you have to wander through this with me, where God says, we're going to remove all of that for a season to teach, I don't know, I mean, maybe this is what he's doing in me, I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> But maybe what he's doing in me is saying, okay, I'm going to teach you how to be satisfied and excited in who I am. Not simply in the way that you feel about me or the things that I'm doing for you and through you. God uses these times of trial to wean us off of ourselves and our feelings about God and help us to find satisfaction in God himself. Okay, so what do we do when we're going through one of these seasons of, of, of you know, where God just seems to be taking forever um, well, what I believe is this, the only way that we can grow up, that we can mature, that we can be transformed is to hold on to Jesus through the dark night of the soul. And, and this is really, I think, what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Because one of the problems that we have in our society, and I'm not the only one noticing this, I mean, people are writing papers about this all the time, but one of the things that's happening in our society is that we're just not growing up. Like, uh, people are not maturing uh, in the world that we live in. And, and this is one of the reasons, I think, because we don't know what to do when life is hard. And we don't know um, how to just stick it out and, when life is hard. And, uh, and so, the, 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 um, let me put it like this, you don't have to go through the dark night of the soul. I mean, there's examples in the Bible of people who refuse to go through the dark night of the soul. Um, there's, there's Judas, who would rather die than go back um, and apologize and repent. There's, uh, there's Jonah. Uh, we can run from the dark night of the soul. 
Um, and so many of us do. It's what we're all tempted to do. And this is why the book of Hebrews was written, because the original author, uh, the original readers, like so many of us, you know, were interested in Jesus until it cost us something. And so he's saying over and over again, hold on to Jesus. You have an anchor in Jesus. So what do you do when you're going through the dark night of the soul? What you do is you just stick with it. You, hold, you have an anchor in Jesus. You don't give up meeting together. He says in chapter 10, you don't run away. You don't change courses. You don't uh, move. You don't get a new job. You don't bail on your friends or your spouse. You keep reading the Bible. You keep praying. You keep going to church. You pull the oars in and you just wait. Because faith, uh, you know, we have this tendency to think that like, um, that we're fragile. You know, you think about a wine glass, right? You apply any amount of stress to a wine glass and it just shatters. Uh, and we now live in a world where we think everything is fragile. But our muscles are not f- fragile, right? Like, our muscles atrophy and grow flabby and weak if we don't use them. And what this passage is telling us, and what I think the whole Bible would lead us to believe, is that faith, like a muscle, grows, grows flabby without use, without being tested. So I'm not telling you to go looking for trouble. It'll come and find you, don't worry. But you don't have to run from it. And without stress, our muscles atrophy and grow weak, just like our faith. And so it's in these moments when we're under pressure and we're tempted to bail um, that we need to just hold on to Jesus. We just need to hold on to Jesus. Do not give up meeting together. Hold on to the anchor. And as we do, our taste buds are retuned. And we find satisfaction in God and in his word. And Netflix, you know, just doesn't hold the same level of satisfaction. But God in his glory fills us with hope and brings us immense joy. Let me just finish with this. Yesterday, I got to go uh, visit Maureen Messenger at the hospital. Uh, If you don't know, Maureen is uh, battling cancer. And um, I went and spent maybe half an hour with Maureen and listened to her just kind of tell me how she's doing and then, you know, doing the kind of pastor thing. I'm like, well, let me read, you know, a psalm to you and let me pray for you which was great. And then Maureen said, can I have your Bible? And she took the Bible, my Bible, out of my hands. And she opened to Deuteronomy 33, 12. And she read this. She said, well, she read from Deuteronomy, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. And Maureen then went on to tell me, she said, I've always loved that verse. Because when I was a kid, I was afraid of the water unless my dad was in it. And she said my dad would pick me up and set me on his shoulders where I would rest. And then he would take me and fling me. (laughs) And she said I would never go in the water without my dad. But if he was there, it didn't matter if he flung me somewhere because I knew he was close and he would grab me again. She said, yesterday, I'm on his shoulders and I don't know if I'm ever getting off. But I'm resting on his shoulders. And that's what faith is. We can live in a world where we have no idea what's going on. We have no idea where God is flinging us. 
but faith is the assurance that he exists. And it's the conviction that the best way to live life is to follow him no matter where he leads. And it's the willingness to wait on him. So we wait for him to show up. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would give us faith. God, we want to uh, we want to believe, and yet we live in a world where it's so hard. And so, would you give us the gift of faith? Would you give us the conviction that you are real? that you know us, that you love us, that you're interacting with our lives, that you care about us. And because we are convinced that you truly exist, would you help us to follow you? Would we live what our faith propel us to action? So much so that even when we don't know what you're doing in our lives, God, we'd be able to wait on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.